following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. There is tension in the air as today's gospel begins with two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians or the supporters of Herod teaming up to try to trap Jesus with a question. The question, does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar? Or not. Now, to understand how that question is a trap, we need a little bit of context, beginning with the fact that Jewish folks in first century Palestine paid lots of taxes in different sorts of taxes. They paid temple taxes and land taxes, they paid customs and trade taxes, and they paid this sort of tax at the center of today's story the imperial tax a tax required as a tribute to the Roman emperor, used, frankly, to support Rome's occupation of Palestine. You see, occupation and oppression of people are expensive ventures. It was costly for Rome to maintain such a large and brutal military that could keep everyone in their proper place. So, who better to pay for it than the people being oppressed themselves? And so those living in first century Palestine, much like colonized people ever since, paid for the privilege of Rome's military occupation of their land. But of course, not everyone viewed the imperial tax in the same way. Herod's supporters, the Herodians, were something like a political party that was connected to King Herod. King Herod, you might recall, was the puppet ruler installed there locally by Rome. They supported the imperial tax, because they benefited from Rome's occupation, sort of indirectly, but politically and economically. The Pharisees were a different sort of political party, a group mostly of religious scholars. Now, probably they didn't support the imperial tax explicitly, but they likely didn't oppose it either. For they, you might recall, were law and order religious folks, and so the Roman military generally was happy to prop up their local power. In sharp contrast to these two groups, the supporters of Herod and the Pharisees, most of Jesus' followers would have strongly, vehemently opposed the imperial tax. For many of them seemed to have been attracted to Jesus precisely because he was offering such a stark alternative to Rome, to Rome's economy, to Rome's military, to Rome's injustice. For them, the imperial tax was both a financial hardship but also a constant reminder of Rome's oppression, that they lived in a land occupied by Rome. And so the question Jesus is asked today is meant to force him to pick a side on this divisive issue. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <clears throat> if Jesus says, yes, go ahead and pay this imperial tax, then he will likely disappoint and even alienate his followers. If, on the other hand, he says, no, don't pay the imperial tax, well, then he's on the wrong side of Rome. It's what we might call today a political or ideological litmus test, this way of distilling a very complex issue into a simple binary choice. Pro-tax or pro-business? Pro-life or pro-choice? Pro-Israel or pro-Palestine? Which side are we on? Either or questions like this make wonderful traps in every time and place. But of course, Jesus doesn't fall into the trap. 
Show me the coin used to pay the tax, he says. Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they reply. Well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, Jesus says, initially seeming to agree with the pro-tax side of the debate. But then he continues, and give to God what belongs to God. That second half of Jesus' response changes everything in the story, bursting the narrow box into which they had tried to trap him and putting the Roman emperor in his proper place. Give to God what belongs to God. If the coin belongs to Caesar because the coin bears Caesar's image, then what belongs to God? Well, whatever bears God's image, including the Herodians, including the Pharisees, including Jesus' followers, including even the Roman emperor, including you and me and the whole rest of creation. For God created humanity in God's own image, we are told in our first creation story. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, we read in Psalm 24. There is a limit to what belongs to Caesar. There is no limit to what belongs to God. Sometimes this story has been reduced to a lesson only about money. But money, money is only a part of a much, much bigger story. Everything, everything, including our money, but also our calendars and our skills and our attention, everything, everything belongs to God. God's call and God's claim on our lives is all-encompassing, which is probably why those who heard Jesus' response left as soon as he said it. They weren't just disappointed that they couldn't trap him with their clever question. They were astonished at the totality of living God's different way. For taxes, taxes have fixed rates. Not so our relationship with God. Now, throughout this month of October, in our worship together, we have been talking about and exploring exactly this. Specifically, five essential practices that help us to reconnect with God and reconnect with each other. We've been setting practical and attainable goals as guideposts for the coming year to help us respond to God's all-encompassing grace. We began this month with worship, a practice of giving our attention to God. Through prayer and worshiping together, we give thanks to God and listen for God's still-speaking voice. Then the next week, we talked about study, our practice of, of giving our minds, our thinking to God, our learning to God opening ourselves with curiosity and wonder to notice where God is acting, not only in Scripture, but also in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors. Then last week, we talked about serving, our practice of giving our activity to God, offering ourselves as God's instruments, actively seeking opportunities to spread kindness and grow justice and affect healing in the world, especially in seasons when life feels to us overwhelming, when we feel acutely the brokenness of the world or our communities or our own personal lives, we're invited to be gentle and to be good right where we are, to reach beyond ourselves, to put others ahead of ourselves, to embody God's self-giving love. Now this week, we're moving to our fourth practice, the practice of giving, specifically giving our finances. For while today's gospel is not only about money, because it's about everything belonging to God, it is then about our money too. 
It's about how our money can reconnect us with God and with each other. Unfortunately, though, it must be said that that's not how we usually use money. Far, far, far more often, money divides and isolates us. Our neighborhoods, our school districts, our sources of entertainment and recreation and travel, our politics, our access or lack thereof to health care and food and shelter, even our churches very often are divided by wealth. We tend most often to build relationships with folks of a similar income level to ourselves. And unsurprisingly, that impacts the way that we perceive and behave toward each other. When we don't have money, we can become anxious and afraid. We might internalize messages that we are somehow less than or perceived as less than those who have more. And those emotions can turn us further inward, separating us from our neighbors. And when we do have money, we can be fooled into thinking that we are self-sufficient, deceived by the lie of the self-made person, convinced then that we don't need other people to be content. Able to buy what we desire, we might think that that means we can buy what we need. And while we may not say it out loud, or of course we might, we might feel somehow that we are better than, harder working, smarter, more deserving than those who have less. About a decade ago, there was a study conducted at the University of California that illustrated exactly this, this power of money to divide us. Part of the study was a two-person game of Monopoly in which the game was rigged so that one player started out with more money, played by a different set of beneficial rules, and easily then would always win the game. What the study found was that those who won the game, even though they knew that the game had been rigged in their favor, those who won reported feeling that they had somehow deserved to win, that they were better players, even though they knew the game was rigged in their favor. They even started speaking and behaving more rudely, more entitled toward their opponent as the game progressed. And the effect was the exact opposite on the players who lost, even though, again, they knew the game had been rigged against them. Money and wealth have this insidious power to divide, to isolate, to separate us, to change the way that we perceive one another in a very fundamental way, to perceive our neighbors as competitors instead of companions. But it doesn't have to be that way. And if all of our money belongs to God, then it definitely should not be that way. Our money can and should be a tool to connect us rather than driving us apart. Practicing generosity helps us in this, opens us to God's more life-giving way. We can be more intentional about the ways that we use our money. We can, for example, give to support community services, public schools and parks and libraries and local journalism. We can give to charitable causes that work to level the playing field, helping to heal generational wealth inequalities. We can shop in lower income neighborhoods. We can buy local and fair trade, making sure that we're investing our money in businesses that compensate their employees justly. And of course, we can give to the local church. We can do so to invest our resources and ourselves in a community that expresses our values, that's committed to building justice and kindness in our neighborhood. A community in which many of us have found and formed family over years, relationships that sustain us, 
with belonging and shared purpose. When we give to the local church, we connect to its ministries and to the people who are its community. And when we give to a local United Methodist Church, we connect even more deeply and broadly than that. For fundamentally, you may know, our United Methodist movement is a connection. No United Methodist congregation is independent or separate. Each is a part of every other. Financially, we live the reality of this connection through what we call shared ministries, with each congregation asked to give a certain amount proportional to their annual expenses to support ministries that we're doing around the world together. Here at the United Methodist Church of Kent, for example, about 88 cents of every dollar that you give to the local church supports our local ministries, our music, our worship, our children's and youth and adult discipleship, our outreach and service among our neighbors, including all of our community partnerships like scouts and 12-step recovery groups and campus ministries and children's daycare and preschool and, and so many more, more than I can name. The other 12 cents of every dollar reaches beyond all of our ministries here locally to make a difference for Christ's love around the world. Together, through our connection, we are investing in education and healthcare, especially among under-resourced communities. Together, through our connection, we are providing relief and recovery services following natural disasters and wars and helping to mitigate the effects of climate change. Together, through our connection, we are engaging in community-based ministries with folks who are economically vulnerable, learning and growing together toward lasting and systemic change. And together, through our connection, we are advocating toward a more beloved world. Because we are a connectional movement, when we give to the local church, we are connected as God's people all around the world, connected through the ministries that our money supports. Money, you see, doesn't have to divide us. It can be a tool to reconnect us. For generations, folks have done so by practicing a tithe, giving 10% of our total income to the local church. It's a fundamental way, a very basic way that we can connect with each other, connect with our communities, connect with God as we give toward beloved community. Tithing, I know, has been a life-giving and a connecting practice for me personally, and I know that it can be for you too. But if you're not ready yet to practice a tithe, then I'd encourage you to commit to giving some other percentage of your income. Figure out what percentage of your income you're giving now to the local church and then commit to growing that, maybe even just by a half a percent in the next year. Whether we give 10% or some other percentage, giving an intentional proportion of our income is a great way to give attention to what we give, to grow in our generosity, to connect with God's movement in the world. Personally, I'm so grateful, so grateful for these months that I've had the opportunity to be a part of this congregation. So grateful for its ministries and the relationships that we as a community of faith are building in our neighborhood. And so what a blessing it is for me to have the opportunity just by giving 10% of my income to God's mission through this church. What a blessing, what a blessing and a joy to be connected through my finances to a purpose that inspires my life. And the next Sunday, as I said, October 29th is going to be our Commitment Sunday. During worship, we'll be talking about our fifth and final essential practice to reconnecting with God and with each other. We'll also be invited to submit those completed commitment cards for 2024, naming our commitments for the upcoming year. 
I've been praying about the commitment that I'll be naming next week. I hope, I hope that you have been too, for it is a joy and it is a blessing to give ourselves completely to God, to give ourselves fully to God's ongoing work of healing this world with love. By God's grace and through our practice of generosity, may we be connected in that. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kent.org.